You're listening to Disentangling Disinformation, the podcast from the British Embassy in The Hague. We're asking, what is disinformation, how does it work, and why does it matter? We all know disinformation is nothing new. Deception or propaganda, call it what you will, it's been part of conflict for a long time, way back into history. Last time we discussed, what is disinformation? What does it mean and why is it used? We're looking at it in particular on the back of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has brought conflict and disinformation around the conflict to our televisions, social media and newspapers like never before. In this second episode, we're looking at how disinformation works, how is it spread and where do you and I come into contact with it. We'll also have a look at how it's changed over time. Today, I'm joined by Margot Smit, Ombudsman for Journalist Work from the Dutch Public Broadcaster System, and Anouk Tonison from the Centre for Information Resilience, which is an independent, non-profit social enterprise seeking to uncover war crimes and other atrocities through open access information. Both are speaking freely based on their own experiences. Well, thanks both for joining us today. Um, Anouk, would you like to just introduce yourself? Yes, of course. Um, So yeah, as you just said, I'm Anouk. I've been working with the Centre for Information Resilience for the last year and a half. And within this, I'm working in a capacity as a senior investigator. And so I'm focusing on on human rights violations as well as disinformation and uh, identifying influence operations by hostile states. Thanks very much, Anouk. And Margot? Um, I'm an ombudsman. Uh, I've been doing this work since uh, six and a half years now for the uh, public broadcasting system in the Netherlands, all broadcasters, all journalistic content. I used to be a reporter for a long time and I've always been a television girl. I've always worked in television and done national and international investigations. And now we've got you on a podcast. <laughs> so no television. But thank you both very much for joining us. Um, so I'm just going to kick off with asking Margot you a question, which is, which forums do you see are most frequently used to distribute disinformation? Well, you can use basically any platform for it. There is no uh, restriction. You know, my working area is the public broadcaster. And um, the public points out disinformation to me or misinformation to me because I want to make the distinction between the two uh, um, on any platform. And uh, when I get members of the public to point it out to me, I try to investigate uh, whether the claims are true. But any platform, maybe the Internet is, is the one that is the easiest for people to reach. Social media are easy. You know, it's just a fingertip away. So I... I you might, it's harder to make a television program than to just send out a tweet or, or send out, you know, information on the internet. Yeah, sure. And Anna, do you agree with that? And how do you see people targeted on, say, social media or radio or TV? So yeah, just to jump on what Margot was just saying there, I think where disinformation is mostly uh, disseminated really depends also on the context. So it can be definitely, it can be any uh, any platform, television, newspapers, but definitely disinformation is age old. It's not a, it's not a new phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And the existence of social media and proliferation of social media has definitely amplified the spread uh, of disinformation. And, and again, like when we're looking at social media platforms, all social media platforms play a specific role in that and all uh, are vulnerable to that. Uh, in their own specific way. So, for instance, there's a lot of of misinformation on on Facebook and definitely in groups and pages. But the amplification factor is is higher on Twitter and on TikTok because it's easier to to share, to retweet and and to link to other pages. So, um, yeah, every platform plays its own role. 
Um, then who or how are we targeted? Yeah, but how, how are people targeted and who is targeted? So who is targeted based on, like, if we're looking at research on, on what population groups are targeted, it's very often minority groups. Again, it, it depends on, on what context we're looking at, and it, 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 it would differ a lot more in, like, Afghanistan as compared mm-hmm. to the Netherlands. But you see very often it's that it's minority groups that are targeted as well, and I think Margot can jump on here and has a lot more information here, is people that... Um, uh, express having any feelings of distrust towards the establishment, towards the government, as well as as, as traditional and mainstream media, mainstream media, so to say. Is that right, Margot? Uh, as far as I can see, yes. Uh, I work for the mainstream media, and I see what people write to me when when they write about this kind of content. That uh, there is uh, uh, the mistrust in the in the um, mass media, the mainstream media. Um, Anyone can be targeted also, you know, it, it, it can be uh, um, children with, with, for them, information. But it definitely is a group of people that I see writing me about, you know, in this kind of disinformation that is uh, um, already very skeptical of a lot of uh, developments in society. People who are skeptical of scientific information, skeptical of, of um, uh, uh, the judicial system, the political system. It's rather broad, I think. Anna, you mentioned TikTok earlier and Twitter and the amplification rate. Can you say a little bit more about amplification and how it works? So in terms of like what the example that I just gave for, mm-hmm. for, for Twitter, for TikTok, is it's, it's very easy to, to like something, to retweet something. And the process doesn't involve that many steps, whereas on Facebook it would uh, involve a little bit more effort, still not very much, to actually uh, uh, share something with your, with your direct network. With the amplification factor, and I think how this disinformation is 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 spread and disseminated, I think it relies on on various biases. So there's a there's a cognitive biases mm-hmm. of what we want to see, um, what we like to see, and what we like to share. And then there's the societal biases, and that is the people that we have in our social networks um, are very likely the people that. Uh, share our ideas with us and then lastly there's the algorithmic biases or the machine biases and that is that um that what we engage more with because you know they try to generate clicks and everything so the information that we engage with we're more likely to be exposed to that same information um which ultimately brings you into like a vicious cycle of of just getting the disinformation that yeah that they want to share and you mentioned disenfranchised groups earlier and those that are less connected with society as being particularly vulnerable are they targeted in a particular way by those spreading disinformation or is it just that they're more vulnerable to it in terms of like if they are targeted in a specific way if they are in specific groups then it's it's possible that information would be seeded in these groups Mm -hmm. but because of the confirmation bias uh, people are also more vulnerable to uh, that specific information because we're more inclined, if there's already a sense of dis- distrust or mistrust towards science, as was mentioned, or the governance, if any information or, or articles or reports confirm our, our bias and our ideas, we're much more inclined to believe that. Mm-hmm. People will watch something or listen to something that they recognise, that they feel represented by, so they will go look for that, yes. And Margot, how frequently... Do you think that people are targeted with disinformation or how frequently are they just picking it up and absorbing it? 
I wish I knew. I wish I had any inclination. They will probably find it much more than we even, you know, than we even notice from the outside. I don't know. I I do know that there is a, a certain group of people watching certain programs on on public television, where uh, uh, research that I've done in the past uh, has uh, showed that are uh, um, uh, that there are uh, instances of of misinformation and even disinformation in those programs. It's not a very large group. It's always the same group so it's it, you know you have these people who to keep flocking back to certain programs and they will continue watching that but they might you know just be on on the internet the other time uh, hours of the day and catch on much more of that so it's really hard to, to say i think i don't know anouk do you have any inclination of no to really quantify uh, disinformation and, and how, how far it spreads is mm-hmm. really, really difficult. Also because what defines a successful disinformation campaign is that it goes undetected sure. and, and unnoticed. So to really, and besides that, in like using some platforms, it also becomes harder to really try to do research as an external partner because they might discourage that and, and not uh, publish the tools that would allow you to actually measure sure. how far that goes. Um. You talk about what defines a successful disinformation campaign. Um, what techniques are most effective if you were actively running a disinformation campaign rather than um, misinformation spreading through confirmation bias or um, sharing with your friends? I mean, in terms of disinformation campaigns and, and the strategies, it is not, they're not based on standalone uh, platforms mm-hmm. like it's not one tv show it's it's not one radio show it's not one one social media platform where disinformation campaigns are launched so disinformation successful disinformation campaigns rely on on networks on large networks of of websites um, that first publish the information and then ultimately uh, the individuals which you know genuine accounts but also bots and and, and social media uh, groups channels that ultimately pick them up and, and disseminate that so yeah so the, the bigger that compa- the bigger that network yeah. the more likely it is to to succeed because it can kind of go undetected yes. on a larger range of yes or even networks. if it does go detected by by externals it can still like continue to 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 grow if it's if it's not stopped at the source is that is that something you experience margot across the range of platforms that you look at I think so, yeah, and and uh, you know the the th- the thing is also it may get detected, and different media may pick up on it and may uh, uh, ca- try to counter this information, but usually those are from media that are already distrusted by the group that this is aimed at. Sure. So countering it is a really difficult thing. I've read, you know, uh, uh, research on fact checking and the effect of fact checking. Mm-hmm. Sometimes fact checking may even do the opposite from what we try to achieve. And, and may uh, uh, get people to even believe it harder. Yeah, of course you will say it's not right because you're part of the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the kind of effects that it has. So the undetected thing that Anouk mentions, I think is really, really important. You know, the, the more sophisticated the information and the more trustworthy the people look that bring it out, then it might go undetected for a long time. And, and just to jump on there again, I mean, social media platforms have uh, uh, have, have implemented tools and, and strategies and techniques as well to stop uh, the spreading of disinformation, such as uh, I think they've Facebook has stopped QAnon uh, accounts mm-hmm. from from operating, as well as uh, Russian disinformation propagators. 
Um, but what happens then, if they are being removed from larger platforms such as Facebook and Twitter, is that they are forced, they will ultimately move to, to channels and platforms where there is less control. So you would be speaking about Gab or, or Telegram channels, sure. where there is a lot less uh, visibility from the outside on the conversations that are being had. But so the, this information that is being spread there um, is a lot, yeah, people are... Um, far more vulnerable and so it yeah. becomes a very very strong echo chamber um, for these narratives and how do you build resilience Alec? how do you build people's kind of ability to not i be wish we knew I wish <laughs> <laughs> we don't have a remedy i guess no you know education is is really important but it's also yeah that's something that we need to do we need to keep to make people media literate um, but again, you know, there is research that says that correcting mistakes, genuine mistakes that, that mainstream media make, correcting them openly and transparently, which I'm always very much for, even uh, enforces the distrust of the medium in particular, be- mm. because people will say, well, if you do, do this wrong, you will do something else wrong as well, right? So it's, it's really, media literacy is, is one thing I strongly believe in, but... Um, Ah, I know, Anouk, do you have more? I... No, it's, yeah, I was also going to go for media literacy and, and for people to to learn how to assess their sources. Um, yeah, and, and where their news is coming from. But again, if we're dealing with like general distrust in the establishment mm-hmm. and science, then that is a really long process um, to, yeah. That has to start from when people are pretty young. Yes. Yeah. What I always say when I talk with journalists, uh, which I do a lot for, you know, in my uh, job as as an ombudsman, I always try to uh, convince them that transparency is very important. You know, show them how you do your work, because if you don't, people might easily suspect that you're doing something, you know, off uh, just like that. But um, on the other hand, transparency, we don't have research that actually proves that it uh, um, uh, enhances the trust in media. There's research going on at the moment, but I haven't seen any, you know, any concrete evidence yet. Um, and I, I'm really strongly hoping for it because I think it's really important. We, we as journalists often say to ourselves, you know, people understand what we do. They understand the work that we do, but people don't necessarily. So we have to keep explaining that. That's one very important thing. And you talk about journalists, you've worked in journalism for a long time, Margot. What do you think the impact of disinformation has been on journalism, mainstream journalism and journalists? I think it's uh, uh, um, it has different uh, angles to that. One is that there is this general distrust in, in uh, mainstream media that has grown, and that has actually led to mainstream uh, uh, you know journalists working for mainstream media not being safe in their working environment anymore. You know, like mm. being physically unsafe because people are so outspoken about what the mainstream media do that they will come and. And, you know, try to talk with them face to face. So there's there's that one thing. On the other hand, what I've also seen, and that is a good thing, I think, is that the uh, inclination by journalists to show how they do their work Mm -hmm. has grown. And that is a good thing, I think. But in general, you know, that uh, um, if if you see that what uh, uh, people spreading misinformation and disinformation are doing are uh, 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 making people doubt any kind of media. 
So, and, and that is definitely uh, uh, harmful. You know, it, it used to be uh, okay to say, I work for the public broadcaster, so you can trust my information. That is no longer the case because people miss, uh, you know, they, they distrust everything. And that's, that's this, this sense of, of distrust that, that has grown and, and that's very harmful to all journalists. And have you seen any really brilliant examples that you could point to of journalists showing they're working or proving, um, proving their information? What I've always find a wonderful uh, example is uh, uh, our national uh, news broadcaster NOS is, tar- is uh, aiming uh, on certain platforms, aiming for younger audiences. They have uh, uh, something that they call stories on Instagram. And uh, NOS stories is particularly aimed at teenagers and um, they will always show how they did their story. Where does the information come from? How did they check it? Because their audience asks for it. They will say, yeah, sure, you're telling me this, but tell me how you did it because I want to see that. I like that. I mm-hmm. like that example of, of also taking your audience very seriously. You know, saying, I, I can show you how I did my job. You don't have to just believe me. And you can ask me any question. So they, they're approachable. They're very transparent. And I really like that. And Anna, is that something that you've seen in your work? Have you got any really great examples of that transparency and openness? I mean, so one of the, the uh, pillars of what I do, I've, I've been working on, on Afghanistan mm-hmm. for since the Taliban took over, more or less. And, and one of the aims of what we're trying to do is, is verify information that comes out of that. And in order to do so, we use open source intelligence. Um, yeah which is a set of methods that allows us, for instance, we, uh, we generally we monitor uh, social media and everything and we look for, for when incidents happen, we look for footage and for videos. Mm-hmm. And based on analysis and, and geolocation, we are able to, to find the coordinates and often the time of a certain incidents, which allows us to verify that it indeed occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and based on that, we, we try to build networks together with journalists and other media organisations to make sure that we can can build a information ecosystem that is based on integrity. And so OSINT, I think, uh, is, a, is, is a very useful tool uh, or set of methods in that because we can uh, demonstrate that we have verified that something actually happened and so that it is not disinformation. So, Anik, that's really, really interesting and really great. When you talk about working with journalists and NGOs on open source information are you seeing that more people are receptive to that open source intelligence um are you seeing more media outlets coming to you to look to learn how to do it yes certainly and that is like one of the uh uh, one of the 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 pillars of what we do again is also that we work in capacity building and then we want to make sure that uh, uh media outlets or journalists or ngos working in that same area are able to apply those tools themselves as well and so there's a shared responsibility of course to make sure that the information comes out is verified and is true and that people in the area and in afghanistan and on afghanistan have access to reliable trustworthy and factual information which ultimately not just in afghanistan but everywhere is 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 essential for you know, sustaining democracy in in that sense. (laughs) And what's the impact that you're seeing in Afghanistan of your work? Slow steps. (laughs) (laughs) Small steps. Everything's baby steps. (laughs) 
I think sourcing information is one of the most important things we can do as journalists ourselves. You know, show the sources. That's the only thing you can say. I'm not making this up for you. And journalists often find this difficult because they will say, you know, I read the newspaper for you. I talked with people for you. Do I need to keep repeating that, that I do actually do my sourcing? Yes, you have. You have to keep repeating that. And that's a big shift from the times oui. where we, we listen to the six o'clock news or whatever the Dutch equivalent was, and, and that was it. Yeah. We used to say in the Netherlands, the newspaper is a gentleman. Well, the newspaper is no gentleman anymore. And that's a good thing, you know. People are, are more capable of, of asking for sources themselves. I think that's a good thing. But we have to provide that. And also, I think, you know, once we, we focus more on that sourcing and, and transparency around sourcing, that would also find such such as things such as information laundering, um, where mm. information comes from illegitimate sources or state affiliate media, um, and then all of a sudden finds its way in into general mainstream media, but by obliterating the sources eventually along along the process. Um, but if we uh, amplify and emphasize the, the importance of sharing those sources, uh, the likelihood of that happening is is a lot less. And Margot, just. Going back to something you spoke about earlier, how many people are now sceptical of the information that they're reading in the mainstream media? Um, If you look at the the, uh, Reuters Digital News Report that comes out every year, and the new one is coming out in in June every year, uh, so I'm basing it on last year's information, um, the, the Reuters Digital News Report still says that trust in media in the Netherlands is very high. It's, it's, uh, um, I think it's uh, close to 60%, but then the, uh, the evening news is even trusted, uh, trusted even higher. It's 74% still. So that's high if you compare it to a lot of other countries. And I was talking to one of the researchers recently who does these reports for the Reuters Institute, and he says, you know, that the trust in Dutch media is still so high. All media have to say thank you to the evening news for, because they provide, apparently, for a lot of people still, something that's very trustworthy. And uh, um, we have to be very careful of that, because we can break this China very easily. And um, we have to fight for that every day. And, and as an ombudsman, I'm part of that mechanism of you know, providing insight into uh, uh, what, what journalists do. But luckily, we have still a, a rather high trust in media. But um, it is eroding, like everywhere in the world, and maybe not as fast as, as in other countries, but it is eroding, and we have to work on it hard. And Anik, contrast that to Afghanistan, which is where you're focusing quite a lot of your work. Are you finding um, that you're seeing more trust in social media or online sources rather than mainstream Afghan media? I mean, when you're looking looking at Afghanistan since the Taliban took mm-hmm. over, a lot of media outlets have have been closed. So the ones that have been able to survive, a lot of them are, are state affiliated yeah. media. So uh, yeah, that whole environment is 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 slightly incomparable to what we have available to us yeah, here in course. the Netherlands. Um, and and I wouldn't really have the the numbers or anything on, on, on trust in media in Afghanistan. So I find that quite hard to say. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking back, actually, on your previous question about the impact that I have noticed in our work, I do actually have an example. We do have we do actually make an impact. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that 
Uh, a, a while ago, a couple of months ago in September, one of my colleagues was able to, for the first time, demonstrate and provide evidence that the Taliban had systematically executed uh, opposition fighters without due process. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things is we found is that once this came out, the Taliban denied this. Mm-hmm. and said it is not true and the people that say this um, and you know it's fair the people that have said this uh, they are often found to be sharing disinformation and so uh, the Taliban had adopted that narrative and say okay but these 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 people these these uh, uh, outlets this disinformation is not true what they're saying we did not do that but we were able to then based uh, using OSINT to to yeah verify and show the evidence that no you you did do that and those are you know that is what we are aiming to do and that is the impact that we can make and then in that sense to keep people and, and states accountable uh, uh yeah for the human rights violations that they engage in really meaningful <laughs> really meaningful work um margot and it is there anything else you would like to convey to our listeners about how disinformation works and what you're seeing in your roles. Margot, over to you first. Um, what I find is that the, uh, the public is rather outspoken about it, and I'm glad about that. And, and I would like to urge everybody, whether you're a journalist or, or you know, just a, 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 a citizen, keep talking about these things with each other. But because if we don't talk anymore, we've lost each other. So keep talking about it and try not to you know, uh, uh, get lost in this in this web of of disinformation and misinformation. But but um, at least keep the conversation going. Thank you, Margot. Yeah, Thank. and just to jump on there as well that we we're all vulnerable to an extent to uh, believing disinformation. It's just as likely that we be exposed to it and believe what we're reading, even though it's not true. So I think it's also uh, aside from the fact that we should keep talking about it, it's also a shared responsibility and an individual responsibility to make sure that all the news that we share with the people around us, our social networks or anywhere else, that we are vigilant in in checking our sources and Mm -hmm. making sure that it is actually true. Um, Checking your biases. Practice what you preach. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, Annick, Margot, thank you so much for joining us today on Disentangling Disinformation. We're really grateful for your time and for your expert insights. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Next time, we'll be speaking to Adi Schroeder and Damien Arno about why disinformation matters and how we can combat it. I'm Charlotte Jago. Thanks for listening.